welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is science on the radio, the best place, well, one of the best places for science to be. I don't know. It's a good place for science to be, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it should be everywhere. I mean, it is everywhere, isn't it? Science. is all around us. It is all, all around us. So it's only natural it should be on the radio. Yes, this is true. Um, my name is Chris, and this week, um, I don't know, I'm going to talk about... I'm going to be talking about eels. Listen, I'm coming out with it now. Eels. 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 Ooh, creep fest. Yeah, eels. eels. I've been thinking eels. about eels, eels a bit lately, and I just wanted to, like, address a mystery about the eels, where they come from. And where they the go? Mi- the migration they of go. eels. The migration of the eels. Oh. You may have heard of the migration of the eels. Yeah. Uh, it's been on my mind lately, so I thought I would, yeah, I would talk about the eels. And uh, it's more complicated than you might think. Uh, those who don't know about the eel migration. Does it have anything to do with the moon? It it possibly does, yes. Uh, it's not all about the moon. There's a lot going on. Is there? Yeah. Oh, I can't wait for this yeah. story. It's a, it's a good one. Claire, what do you got? Well, I actually have an interview with Professor Nathan Lowe this week um, who has just put out um, a paper looking at the gut biome. That's a very hot topic at the moment but not of the species of a species you would uh, think. Um, the gut biome of da, 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 the termite. And <laughs> see, this is very interesting. Oh, they've got to because they've got to eat wood. Termites eat woods and yeah. wood. And not many species in this world can uh, process wood. No. Um, so termites are pretty um, special in this case. And so their gut biome, it's not actually the termites that can eat the wood. It is the gut bacteria that process the wood. And this gut bacteria is very specific to termites. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit more about what he found out and what he's just published. Excellent. Yeah. That um, uh, look, That's something, give us something all to chew on. No? Give us all something to chew on? Something like that. Anyway, that's what I'm trying to say. Stu, what have you got for us this week? Well, I was just reading up about some of the weirdest creatures that exist in the world and certainly some of the weirdest creatures that exist in Australia. And I don't know, Stu. We've got eels and termites so far. I know. It's better be good. But I'm talking about the platypus. The platypus and the echidna. Oh, monotremes. Monotremes, yeah. So um, I just came across some research that was identifying some of the genetics that they uniquely possess, which uh, links them to all sorts of different animals which you may not necessarily associate them with. They do look like mammals, but they're not entirely like the rest of the mammals. So I'm just going to have a little talk about some of the things that makes them uniquely monotremic. Excellent. Well, I, I'm i trying to think of a monotreme pun, but I can't. So let's just go on with the show. Okay, yes, you are listening to Lost in Science and on our triple creature feature episode, should I say. Is that right, Claire? That is right. Yes, excellent. Uh, well, And yes, like um, my name is Chris and as I said, I am going to be talking about eels today. Um, look, those who've been listening to this show for a while have probably heard me talk about Mary Creek in Melbourne. I'm often going to like, uh, you know, yeah. surveys and that sort of thing on there. Totally. The yes. um, uh, yams. 
the yam daisies, the the bird surveys, various other things. And um, one of the most fantastic stories I've heard around Merry Creek is a story about the eels, uh, how they... The eels that live in the, this creek in the middle of Melbourne, suburban Melbourne migrate out to the Coral Sea to breed and then swim thousands of kilometres back to return to the same place in suburban Melbourne where their parents came from. Now, remind us where the Coral Sea is. Like, it's not just in, um, you know, in, like, I don't know, off the coast of Victoria, is it? No, it's up, like, off Queensland in New Caledonia and... Thousands of yeah, kilometres. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I said, thousands of kilometres. But look, there's that last bit about returning to where their parents came from. That may not be true. I mean, that's not really verified. But the rest of it is is pretty is pretty amazing. And the fact that we don't know exactly some of these facts is also pretty amazing itself. So let me introduce you to the life cycle of the eel, um, one of the great mysteries of science. Uh, Aristotle was puzzled by it. He thought that eels just emerged spontaneously from mud um, because he couldn't figure out where they came from. And that's because it's complicated. Um, now, I should clarify, I am talking here about the the short-finned eel, which is um, Anguilla australis. <clears throat> there is, um, there's also a long-finned eel, uh, Anguillus reinhardtii, which is more common in New South Wales, um, but it doesn't usually make it uh, past Wilson's Promontory in Victoria. So you won't worry about that. We're talking about the short-finned eel, which is indeed the most common fish in Mary Creek, as well as many other waterways waterways in this part of the world. Uh, and they migrate out to the sea to spawn, which makes them, everybody... No, catadromus. Catadromus. <laughs> That's a new word you've learned today. One of the first <clears throat> of many new words you've learned today. Now, yeah, they are believed to spawn in the Coral Sea, um, southeast of Papua New Guinea, like we discussed. Um, but no one really knows exactly where because, well, the spawning place takes place in deep water. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, how how deep? deep? Well, again, no we knows. don't know. Now, I've seen like lots of people saying about 200 metres down, um, but... I feel that's a, a bit of a guess because they're basically on other eel species. I mean, the thing about eels, especially short-finned eels, you can't really put a radio tracker on them. It just slip right off. People do put radio trackers on them, but we'll get to that. Okay. Um, okay, so what we what we see about them in when they're spawned, though, we, see, we do see their larvae. Um, eels are very weird. They go through a number of metamorphoses in their life, and they start out as these tiny, transparent, leaf-shaped larvae, which are called leptocephali. Um, the singular form is leptocephalus. Um, and these leptocephali, they follow, they kind of drift around uh, in the water. They follow currents down to the East Australian coast, uh, looking for suitable estuaries. Uh, once they get to this point, they turn it into what's called glass eels, which is basically they become more eel-shaped, um, but still small and transparent. Glass eels? Glass eels. Okay. A um, bit of a delicacy in some parts of the world, glass eels. Oh, are they? Yes. Uh, now, the eels don't go up every river, and this appears to be, from things I've read, appears to be one of the reasons why people think that they return to where their parents came from, that they, you know, they're selective about w- which river they go up. But um, it also may also depend on the, the particular currents and the climatic conditions of that year, because it does change from year to year, and well, depending on the conditions. So, like if the if the currents are all wrong, then they won't make it up certain rivers on, in that year. Um, it also does um, does happen in the according to the phase of the moon, apparently, in that the high tide makes it easier for them to enter the estuaries as more water. Um, and this um, in, into the fresher water, and this is mainly happens in mainly midwinter to late spring. Okay. 
Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. So once they're in there, they're in the estuaries, they prepare to go upstream into the fresher water. Then they start to metamorphose again in becoming elvers. Um, they basically turn, become more eel-like. They are... Elvers? Elvers. Like double E? Just L? E-L-V-E-R-S. Um, they grow their dark pigment. They turn into dark little eel-shaped things. Um, they're basically like small versions of eels. They sound like really Tolkien-esque. They, they are a bit Tolkien-esque, I guess. Them. They're kind of... If talking like snaky things that um, swim up rivers and crawl across grounds because they can crawl across the ground as well when really? they need to. And they can climb dams and waterfalls. What I do found... you mean they can climb dams? Well, what, dam walls? Yeah, yeah, apparently. Like concrete walls? Well, I don't know what the, I mean, I've seen references to them climbing dam walls. I haven't seen footage of this. There was a CSIRO study published in 2016 that experimented on how well they could climb <laughs> um, and found that they could climb slopes up to 50 degrees given the right surface. Whoa. Yeah. So this is how this is how they enter. Say they can get to all this ability to climb and to go across the ground is how they get into say um, dams on farms, yeah. um, which annoys farmers sometimes because they get eels in their dam and especially they're trying to grow other fish there. Um, the yeah. eels come in because apparently the eels will just you know sniff out the fresh water and uh-huh. go and go and um, yeah get into it. Anyway, but they go up the stream. Um, the ones that go up the stream are mostly female. They um, they take 10 to 20 years to mature living up in the in the creeks. And the males tend to stay further downstream and take about 8 to 12 years to to um, to mature. And once again, once they have, they once again leave on the full moon uh, when the, the tide is high, um, usually late summer and early autumn. And then they head out to sea. And when they do this, they go through their final metamorphosis, which is they become silver eels. They uh, they lose their darker colour, become more silver. Uh, they also grow gonads finally, and they and because they're focused on going to to spawn, they lose everything else. They actually lose their digestive system. Um, they essentially atrophy then, and by the time they get to the spawning ground, supposedly they're basically just skeletons with gonads. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. But we don't, like I said, we don't know exactly where they go. So, yeah, like Claire, you mentioned the idea of putting trackers on them. People try this. Um, so they have been pop-up trackers, like pop-up, use on some species. Pop-up trackers essentially are satellite trackers that will kind of detach and come up so the satellite can track them, so they're timed. Um, I haven't found any reference to them being used on the Anguilla australis. Uh, but there are similar species that they have been tried on. Um, the best we know is actually from the larvae themselves. Now... This is uh, essentially the basically the smaller the larvae you find, the closer you assume it is to the the breeding ground. That's the idea, at least. Um, now, the first discovery of um, larvae for this particular species was in 1995. There were nine larvae caught in 1995. So that's how kind of little we know Cryptic. about them. Yeah, yeah, it's like, and there's been a few other just you know, a few other ones caught since then. But there's only about you know 12 or so published studies. Wow. On this, um, on where they are from. So, yeah, we still don't know much about them, but it's a remarkable story for such a fish that is so common. And yeah, they've been doing this obviously for a very long time. They've been a part of the landscape for a long time. You may have heard of the uh, the eel traps used by the um, Gundagemara people in the in um, Western Victoria, Lake Condor region. Um, Seven thousand year old, roughly eel traps used to yeah, yeah. capture the eels and trade them. Um, and these eels also seem to have adapted very well to modern urban habitats and agriculture. Unlike other similar species around the world, which do seem to be declining in numbers, the, the local eels seem to be doing quite all right, which is good to know that such a bizarre creature will be around with us for a long time, I guess. 
Triple. Creature. Feature. On. Lust. In. Science. about how other animals use microbes to digest the food that they eat, especially when their food source is something we would all consider inedible, like wood. Well, my guest today is going to help us answer these questions. Professor Nathan Lowe is an evolutionary biologist from the University of Sydney. Welcome to Lost in Science, Nathan. Good to be with you, Claire. You've just published some research looking at termites and how they have the ability to digest wood. Can you tell us a bit about your research and what you found? Yes, so we've been interested in this amazing ability of termites to very efficiently break down wood. And they're one of the only animals that can really do this efficiently because it's a very difficult job. As we all know, wood is very tough Mm. and uh, is a great material for building, but it's very hard to eat and, and digest. And what we've been looking at is the microbes, these little microorganisms that live in the gut of the termite which really give the termite the ability to eat the wood. Without these microbes, the termites can't survive. And it's these microbes that really help the termites to firstly break down the wood and secondly also live on a diet of basically no nitrogen or protein, which which is what wood is. It's basically, there's no, you know, we get nitrogen from the food we eat and we get protein from the food we eat, but termites haven't got that option. So they really need these bacteria to help them out in that way. And so the research was trying to understand how they develop incredibly complex gut microbiota because basically they've got about 5,000 species that live in their guts, this tiny little gut that they have. Uh, although it's relatively big, uh, when, when you think about their body, it's about two-thirds of their entire body is, wow. is this um, gut that holds all these bacteria, whereas you know, human beings, we, we, hold, we carry about one or two kilos worth of um, microbes out of about 60 or 70 kilos, termites, it's about, yeah, about two-thirds of their entire body weight is their microbes. So, And is 5,000 different species of microbes, is that a fairly high number for yeah. a species of insects to be in their guts? Absolutely. Yes. It's one of the most uh, complex microbiota of any organism, actually. So, wow. Now, humans, we have about 500 to 1,000 species, but that's over a pretty, pretty large area of our gut. And a termite, though, is, there's those 5,000 species living within just a couple of microliters of uh, gut fluid. So it's very uh, high diversity of these microbes. And there are a lot of these microbes that only live in termites, and we don't find them anywhere else on Earth. So it seems that they're very specialised to help the termites out. And, I mean, termites um, are in the tropics. You know, they're all over in a diversity of environments. They are. And... Do you see the same microbes? Well, it depends somewhat on their diet. So one interesting thing about termites is most people know that they eat wood, but actually only about 30% of the species of termites out there, and there are about three to 4,000 species, only about a third of them actually eat wood. The rest of them are eating all sorts of things like um, leaf litter and uh, grass 
and lichen. And there's a big group of termites that feed on soil only. So they're basically just living in the soil, feeding off the soil microorganisms. So they're so, the ones you want uh, in your house, not the ones that are eating. Well, the yeah, they, they don't they don't harm anybody. In fact, they're really important for a lot of uh, tropical ecosystems. They they kind of form the basis of the whole ecosystem because they they're able to live there all year round and act as food for a lot of other organisms like birds and reptiles and other insects. So they're kind of like the keystone species of many environments, such as in the um, north of Australia. But yes, you're right. The diet actually determines what kind of uh, microbes they have. So, you know, one, a termite that's feeding on soil will have somewhat different microbes to one that's feeding on wood. These um, microbes are kind of specialised to help the termite break down a certain kind of food that they're feeding on. Is it at all linked to the fact that they have a social structure? Yeah, it's, in fact, the, um, the social structure is really important for termites because it helps them to transfer these really important microbes between each other. So, so most animals are actually not very social. They tend to hang out by themselves. Humans are an exception. But uh, termites, basically a colony consists of mum and dad, and mum and dad will have sometimes up to a couple of million children. <laughs> and all these children are basically exchanging all of their microbes all the time. Wow. And, you know, if, if however, if you're a cockroach, when termites are a kind of cockroach, that's another story, but... <laughs> Um, most cockroaches kind of live by themselves. And if you're living by yourself, it's harder to get those microbes and uh, that consistently, like always pick up the, those specialist microbes that help you to digest wood. Uh, and uh, termites are able to do that because they're living in this complicated social environment where they're always basically regurgitating each other's food into each other. And also they eat each other's poo. That's what they do. Right. Uh, which well, is another unusual <laughs> thing, but very important for them. Very beneficial in very the long run. Very beneficial, yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot of talk about um, fecal implants yes. around. So, you know, this. I mean, termites are just ahead of the game, aren't they? That's right. They've been doing it for 100 million years. Yeah, we, we just discovered this interesting technique <laughs> uh, to restore people's yeah, health. But That's fascinating. And, I mean, how do you go about analysing um, termite guts? Yeah, so for a long time, uh, it was very difficult to study these 5,000 species that live in the termite gut because in the old days, what microbiologists would do would be to grow the um, microbes in a pure culture on an agar plate. So most people have seen these um, petri yeah. dishes. And uh, a lot of microbes, you can, you can just grow them up by themselves and then you can study them quite carefully and work out what they're feeding on and what they produce and things like that. However, in the case of the termite microbes, they are very fastidious, so it's very hard to grow them outside of the gut because the gut is so complicated and has special chemical conditions and all these other compounds that all the microbes are producing. So it's very hard to uh, grow them outside of the gut. It's also an anaerobic environment, so there's no very little oxygen in, in the termite gut. So with the DNA revolution, though, we've been able to look at what these microbes are doing using by sequencing their DNA and... We took about 100 different species from all over the world, different termite species, and we extracted DNA from their guts, and then we sequenced a special part of their DNA that tells us a lot about what they do and what kind of bacteria they are. And then we compared all of these uh, sequences that we got with all the sequences that are available on the databases, mm. for everything else you can imagine. So from that, you could tell that the type of microbes that you were dealing with are quite unlike 
other microbes. Yes, indeed. So often when, when you look at termite microbe DNA and you check it on the database, there's nothing else like it. So, in fact, there are a whole phyla. Um, so the example of the phylum is like uh, arthropods, so all things like insects. With six spiders. legs and three yeah, body so, components. Exactly. So yep. the phylum is, is that particular group of huge number of organisms. So it, in, in the, there's also phyla in the bacterial world and there have been entire phyla that have been discovered living in, in termites that pretty much are nowhere else. Wow. So, yeah, and when we look at the termite guts, yeah, we can, we can see that what we found in this particular study was that the, these termites are exchanging these microbes between each other, not only within the colony, but between different species, so quite unrelated species of termites. For example, some termites might feed on, on soil and a very different kind of termites feeding on wood. But if, it, if they're in the same forest or savanna or wherever, they often will be you know, interacting with each other under the soil. And we found that they seem to be exchanging these microbes perhaps through aggression, through, through fighting with each other over turf or territory. And it seems that by exchanging these bacteria, it helps them to um, sometimes adapt to new niches or start feeding on different, slightly different uh, diets. So uh, but this is almost like some sort of like there's a there's quite a value to these microbes in the termite world. Yeah, they certainly benefit from uh, getting these. I guess it's getting these microbes from other kinds of termites. It seems because they, they we've got very good evidence that they're really exchanging them at a reasonably rapid rate. Because before we did this study, it was thought that a lot of the bacteria had just passed on from colony to the next colony. So in other words, the colony produces its new babies and, and then the babies turn into what we call uh, princes and princesses who, who will then you know, go great. and form another colony. <laughs> um, and then they, those princes and princesses will become queens and kings when they start their new colony. So one idea was that these bacteria have just been passed down the generations, just like we pass on our DNA to our children and, and so yeah. forth. But our study showed that actually... Yeah, this does happen. Certainly, they're being passed down generations, but they're often picked up from other termites. To um, uh, it's, there seems to be a lot of benefit. Just just like humans, throughout the ages, have shared ideas or technologies and things like that. I think termites, for them, these microbes really help them to uh, uh, increase their fitness in, in in new environments and things like that. And what are you hoping will be the applications of the research? I guess part of the reason we do this research is because we hope to learn from termites how to basically obtain energy very efficiently from woody biomass, which is much more difficult to turn into to fuel than, um, say, something like corn is, because you know, there's been quite a lot of interest over the last few decades in uh, producing sustainable biofuels, that is, turning our um, discarded plant matter, the stuff we don't eat, into energy, you know, fuel like alcohol or ethanol. And by studying termites, we can get an idea of uh, how to do it because they're so good at it. And there's this incredible diversity of enzymes in termite guts, in their microbes. And by understanding how they work, it, it, we may be able to, it may help in the design of uh, new ways of turning all this kind of biomass, all this uh, plant matter that's not used anywhere into usable fuel, a sustainable fuel, obviously, because you can keep growing it. Well, thanks so much for letting me chew your ear off today, uh, Nathan. That was a pleasure. Thanks so much for <laughs> and um, yeah, 
And looking forward to hearing how the research progresses um, into the future. Yes, thank you very much. Triple. Creature. Feature. On. Lost. In. Science. As we've heard from Chris, uh, Australian animals are often quite weird and unusual compared to animals found in other parts of the world. Um, And, you know, some of that's because of their unusual ways of moving around, like, you know, a lot of hopping around that a lot of Australian (laughs) animals do, which is pretty unusual if you look at uh, other animals in other parts of the world. Um, But we also have some very unusual types of animals. So the commonest are the marsupials. We have plenty of marsupials in Australia, koalas and possums and kangaroos and wallabies and all those things who carry the young around in pouches. But the strangest of all are really the monotremes. Oh, for sure. So there are two types of monotreme found in Australia and there's none found anywhere outside Australasia. So... There is a species of echidna that's endemic to Papua New Guinea, but pretty much we have the monopoly on monotremes uh, in monotreme the world. The monotreme monopoly. Yeah, that's right. Monotremonopoly. Monotr- <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they basically look like mammals. They kind of, you know, they have fur. They feed their infants on milk. They uh, have beaks. Well, one of them. One has, of them has yeah. a bill. A, a yeah. bill. Um, Just but, like mammals. <laughs> But most of their other features are quite different to other mammal species. So the most obvious feature the echidnas and platypus share, which sets them apart, is that they lay eggs from which their babies hatch. Very weird. So that's, you know, quite common in birds, obviously, and in reptiles as well, but not really a mammal thing to do uh, to lay eggs. Um, They also have very highly sensitive electrosensors in their noses. So, uh, platypus use these for finding food underwater. Um, Platypus use these for finding food underwater. They have these electrosensors, and echidnas can use them for sensing ants and termites and other food. So, they actually use it to find their dinner. So, electric ants. Well, they sort of all have a little bit of a charge to them, I suppose, or they can detect changes in the electric field or something. Mm. I'm not really sure how it works, but obviously it seems to work. They they don't go hungry anyway. Um, So the word monotreme means single hole. Uh, And like birds and reptiles, they have a cloaca, which functions as their only outlet for waste and for egg laying in females. So that's very unlike mammals as well. Um, they do have some obvious mammalian features. They have a single lower jawbone, which all mammals have. 
Um, in other animals, there is uh, the bone is in two parts. Oh, so like how snakes can do that thing where they split their mouth bigger. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, and obviously, birds don't really have a jawbone as such anyway. But um, so that's that's a very mammalian feature that they have. They have three tiny bones in the inner ear, like all other mammals do. The, the three uh, bones that allow that allow them to hear, and they have deciduous teeth. Which means they lose their teeth. Every, so they, every year? No, no, no. They have they lose their baby teeth and they grow adult okay. teeth. Just As like opposed to your evergreen other. teeth. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The uh, the evergreen teeth. If you don't brush your teeth often enough, <laughs> um, kids. So yeah, so they grow permanent adult teeth later on after they lose what they call their milk teeth. So they stop feeding on the milk. Um, both echidnas and platypus have the same bone structure as birds and reptiles too, meaning that they carry their legs out to the sides rather than directly underneath themselves. And you know, birds, birds' legs are directly underneath themselves. They're, they're attached in a different way, basically. Okay. Um, but so that's why that's why echidnas walk that funny way because they they can't walk with their legs okay. going forward. They sort of have to go out to the side. So they have that odd little gait that they have. Um, now, one interesting thing about male platypus is that they have venomous spurs on their hind legs. That which, is kind of weird. Which they can use to fight each other and to defend themselves. And recently, there have been some genetic studies that show the same genes are responsible for the venomous spurs on platypus as the genes that do the same function in venomous reptiles. So they've got the same genes for making their own venom. That is ancient found in venom genes. Ancient venom genes. Cool. Uh, and in a paper published in Nature in 2008, they suggested that, in fact, the earliest mammals may have all been capable of producing venom. Wow. And Can we that, do it? That it was probably just a standard thing and it was not an unusual characteristic to have. Um, loris, slow loris, are also really? venomous. They don't have spurs, but they produce a venom. They're very slow, though. I've seen them. They are not much danger there. Well, if you touch them, you can you can oh, really? get yeah 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 they've got you to catch get... you first though you can probably outrun them <laughs> yeah yeah hopefully all those people who are trying to wildlife trade them get stung with the venom of the slow loris hopefully yeah um, so look while we look at echidnas and platypus as being oddities of the Australian animal kingdom in fact it's probably the venomous placental mammals which are the exception to the yeah. rule. Uh, while the egg-laying monotremes might have actually been the basic model of mammal biology in, in the very early days. Proto-mammals. Sadly, we've come to the end of our triple... Creature. Feature. On Lost in Science. Um, it has been a great show, hasn't it? We've learned about the, the, the termites and their weird wood-eating gut flora. Gut flora, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the surprisingly normal monotremes. The, the magical monotremes. The new normal of monotremes. Turns out that we're the weird ones. Yeah. And, of course, the eels, which are weird, let's be honest, but they're everywhere. Lost in Science, it is, of course, recorded studios of 3CR in Melbourne, you know all this. Uh, it airs across Australia, the Community Red Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We look, we would love you to get in touch with us, uh, wouldn't we? 
yeah. Definitely. Please do. Yeah, particularly if you want to say, you know, tell us we're wrong about something, whether it's about monotremes or eels. <laughs> um, so please email us at lostinsci, L-O-S-T-I-N-S-C-I, at gmail.com. Um, find us on Twitter. You can message us on Twitter or on Facebook. It's probably a good way to message us. Uh, we are Lost in Science on 3CR on Facebook. Um, you could also, I guess, look, you could also call 3CR, couldn't you? Like, um... 0394198377 and but otherwise you can just listen to us passively um, you can find us on your podcast provider if you find us on iTunes please uh, give us a good rating and or you can find us on demand on our 3CR website or you can just listen to us on the radio where same time every week Claire, Stu and Chris get lost in science thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.